Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is Ireland and the Anti-Slavery Movement. From the 1790s onwards, numerous black anti-slavery activists visited Ireland to build support for the abolition of slavery. I'm delighted to have Christine Keneally, one of the leading historians of 19th century Ireland, on today's show to discuss three of these. Equiano, Alauda, Frederick Douglass and Sarah Parker Remond. While Christine talks about some of the people featured in her new book called Black Abolitionists in Ireland, in this wide-ranging interview, she also discusses the support for anti-slavery movements in Ireland from the 1790s, how former slaves were treated in Ireland, and also the tensions that emerged between Irish emigrants in the USA and people back in Ireland over the issue of slavery. Later in the show, I'll have details about a free online event Christine is organising for Culture Night and how you can participate online. Finally, don't forget to check out the online shop. There's new items added there. Recently, I uploaded a new series of limited edition enamel badges to mark the series Partisans, Irish Stories from the Spanish Civil War. Check out those badges. There's Frank Ryan, Hannah Ormsby and Pader O'Donnell. They're available now at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. That's irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. Sound for this episode was by Jason Looney. In this podcast, we will focus on three black anti-slavery activists who visited Ireland between the 1790s and the 1860s. However, to set the scene, I asked Christine if there was a black community in Ireland in the 18th century. So in 18th century Ireland, it's hard to know if there was a black population because the first census report wasn't taken in full until 1821. So really we're relying on alternative sources, which rarely mention people in terms of race. It's unlikely that many people would have come to Ireland because, as we know, Ireland was greatly impoverished. Uh, The 18th century, there were a number of famines. Of course, the 1741 famine is the most important. Uh, Some people think many people were uh, died of starvation as during the better-known Great Famines of the 1840s. So probably in terms of coming to Ireland, it wasn't that attractive. But also, it's likely that there were some sailors who made their way to Ireland. 
And we know from the accounts of slaves that they heard these things by word of mouth. And in Britain, there was a very famous court judgment, 1772, which said that if any black person, even a former slave, arrived on the shores of England, they were effectively free and safe. And although it explicitly didn't refer to Ireland's colonies, sorry, to Britain's colonies, it was taken up to mean that this meant in any part of the British Empire, including Ireland. So it seems by more anecdotal evidence that there were some black people in Ireland in the 18th century, but probably not many. But what's interesting, though, is that even though some people in Ireland were benefiting from the slave trade, which was in existence till 1807, there was also pockets of anti-slavery and attempts to you know, sign petitions and to support the much larger anti-slavery movement in Britain. The first activist to visit Ireland was Equiano Alauda, who arrived in the 1790s, a period that saw the emergence of one of the most radical movements in Ireland's revolutionary history, the United Irishmen. They wanted to forge an independent Irish Republic, but crucially in terms of our story, as Christine explains, they were also vehemently opposed to the slave trade and slavery. The United Irishmen were pretty remarkable because they were probably one of the most democratic movements in the whole world. Because if we think the American Revolution, the French Revolution, you know, these people did not liberate black people. They held on to slavery. France held on to slavery in its vast empire. But the United Irishmen, they were Democrats, as we know, they were inclusive to Protestants and to Catholics, to all denominations. And they believed that the slave trade should be ended. And they welcomed a young former black slave, Equiano, to Ireland in the 1790s. So you know, in the 1790s, there is you know, evidence of real support um, for anti-slavery. And Equiano, who went to Ireland, his book, he was one of the first to write a narrative and he produced an Irish edition which sold out. So his tour to Ireland was very, very successful. I asked Christine to tell me more about Equiano, who he was and his background. Yeah, Equiano, he was fascinating because unlike a lot of the later black abolitionists who were born in the United States into enslavement, Equiano was actually captured into enslavement. He and his sister were captured in the area we would now think of as Nigeria when they were about 11 years old and they were separated. He never saw his sister again, but he was rather than um, made a slave on land in a plantation. He was a great sailor. And so he lived his teenage years at sea. During that time, he fought in a number of wars, um, including the Seven Years' War. He received a payment for that. And he really received an education. He said later on, it was an Irish sailor who said, you must learn to read and write. Through that is salvation. And you know, like many later slaves, through reading and writing, he came to know the Bible. So he was pretty religious as well. He visited England a few times. He knew about this judgment that if you were in England, you were free. And he purchased his freedom. So his pathway was very, very different. He published his narrative, which was actually in total reprinted nine times. It was incredibly successful. And around 1794, he went to Ireland. He was there as the guest of the United Irishmen, mostly. He was in Dublin, Cork and Belfast. Of all those areas, he felt most comfortable in Belfast. And in Belfast, he stayed in the home of Samuel Nielsen, who was one of the most radical members of Young Ireland. And Nielsen was the person who started the newspaper, the North Star. Um, so 
he was probably very influenced by meeting the United Irishmen, by learning about Ireland's long struggle for independence and its desire now to be a republic. And when Aquiano came back to London, he actually became involved with another radical group who also wanted a republic in Britain. So he sort of was unusual in that he had links both in Ireland and in Britain with radical groups. The British government, now at war with France, was very nervous. And in 1794, they imposed habeas corpus. They started to arrest people who were leading members of the radical groups. And of course, Equiano was in great risk because he was a link between Ireland and British radicals. And from that point, the very public figure of Equiano actually disappeared from public view. So we don't see him at all in the newspapers. He published no more narratives. And we know he died a few years later in London, but we don't know where he was buried. So his ending is a mystery, but it seems he disappeared very deliberately because of his involvement with radical politics, including the United Irishmen. I was curious to find out what exactly Equiano did in Ireland. What were his aims and his objectives here? So at this point, the movement, the abolition movement, really wanted to end the slave trade. They believed that if the slave trade, which carried hundreds and thousands of people across the Atlantic every year. They believed if that could be ended, slavery itself would come to a natural ending because the slaves weren't being replenished. Of course, we know that was wrong. So the agitation was to end the slave trade. And it really was centered around um, Britain. Uh, The man we think about when we think of this early wave of abolition is William Wilberforce. And Equiano would have been an advisor to Wilberforce's group to end the slave trade. So he mixed in very high circles. We know he attended Parliament on various occasions. William Wilberforce brought in massive petitions into Parliament as a way of exerting pressure for them to end the slave trade. It was unsuccessful. Actually, one of the ironies of the Act of Union of 1800, which brought 100 Irish MPs into the Westminster Parliament after 1801, is that many of them were opposed to slavery. And so their vote was crucial in ending the slave trade in 1807. So in 1807, the slave trade was ended. At that point, Equiano was dead for almost a decade. But his contribution in terms of writing his narrative, and each time his narrative was republished, he added to it, talking about the horrors of slavery. And in such an educated, like Frederick Douglass, even though he was self-educated, he was immensely articulate. People who met him said he was incredibly charming. So to actually see people who could negate all these stereotypes of slaves as being brutish and uncivilized was very, very important. So in terms of the early anti-slavery movement, he would have been a major part of persuading public opinion. And because he traveled so before 1794, he traveled in Scotland, in Wales, in England, in Ireland. And for people to actually see this young man who had been a slave, who'd been born in Africa. Again, it was a very powerful tool in the anti-slavery armoury. The slave trade was banned in 1807. However, as Christine alluded to, this did not end slavery itself. In the Americas, it continued as the children of slaves were themselves forced into the horrors of slavery. By the mid-19th century, a movement to end slavery outright was gaining traction. This would see one of the most famous African-Americans of all time visit Ireland. This was Frederick Douglass, a former slave himself. Christine explains more about Frederick Douglass and his visit 
to Ireland. So Frederick, in some ways, followed in the pathway of Equiano and another black abolitionist who visited Ireland, 1842, uh, Charles Raymond Lennox, who is less well-known today, but in his day was more famous at, for a time than Frederick Douglass. And the two men became friends. Frederick Douglass's um, life was very different. He was born into enslavement. He didn't know the year. We now know it was 1818. He didn't know the date, but later on, he picked St. Valentine's Day for his birthday, the 14th of February. And he decided he that learning to read and write would be his pathway to freedom. So as a young boy of seven, he very determinedly and systematically learned how to read and write, mostly self-taught. He clearly, from early on, he wanted to help other people. Uh, he came across this book, which was The Greatest Speeches of the World, and he later said that two of the speeches that informed him most were by Irishmen, Sheridan and Arthur O'Connor. And so you know, from very early on, you can see this burning ambition in Frederick, not only to escape himself, but to assist other people to escape. He tried a few times to escape, and finally, as a young man of 20, he escaped to New York. There he was joined by the woman who had helped him escape, Anna Murray. They married Frederick. His surname at the time was Bailey. He changed his surname to Douglas, and he and Anna moved to New Bedford, where Frederick got job, a job on the docks, and where he felt relatively safe because it was a Quaker community. He could never feel totally safe because there was a Fugitive Slave Act, which meant at any time he could be recaptured and returned to his so-called master. So he was always living in some sort of danger. Nevertheless, he started to read the Liberator newspaper, an abolitionist newspaper started by William Garrison, and he started to attend abolitionist meetings. And at one point, he was asked to attend a convention on the island of Nantucket. It was to be the largest anti-slavery convention ever to that point. It was 1842. He attended, and he was unusual. He was a former slave attending abolitionist meetings. And he was called on to speak, and he said his knees were shaking, and he felt nobody would want to listen to him. But he got up, and he made a very compelling um lecture about his life and why he was now in Nantucket. And the audience was enthralled. And one of the audience was William Garrison, the leading abolitionist of the day, a white abolitionist. And apparently Garrison was so moved, he stood up and turned to the audience and said, "You, know, is this a man or a thing we have just heard? And the audience, of course, rapturously said, a man. And Garrison at that point decided that Frederick Douglass, again, was a treasure that he couldn't let go. So he offered Frederick a job as an agent, a lecturer for the American anti-slavery movement. And at that point, Frederick lectured with Charles Raymond. They became friends. And Frederick lectured for a few years. But people were doubting his story. He didn't want to give away the name of his masters or where he'd been born. He wanted to be vague. He was nervous about being recaptured. And so some people started to say, throw doubts on his story and say he was too articulate to have been a slave till he was 20. So Frederick, like others before him, published his narrative. Uh, his narrative was published in May 1845. Um, again, as was the tradition, the preface was written by a white abolitionist, in this case, Garrison. What's interesting about the preface is it refers to Daniel O'Connell, who who had replaced Wilberforce as the leading figure of transatlantic abolition. And so 
Daniel O'Connell was praised in the preface of Frederick Douglass's narrative. So obviously, even before he came to Ireland, Frederick knew about Daniel O'Connell. So the book was published, it became a bestseller, it propelled Frederick even more into the limelight, which has also meant he was in danger of being recaptured. So in August 1845, he, with a small number of other white abolitionists, sailed from Boston to Liverpool. Frederick spent two days in Liverpool, and then he sailed to Dublin. And he arrived in Dublin 31st of August, 1845. Frederick had initially planned to come to Ireland with the intention of spending four days in the country and meet a publisher based in Dublin, but he would end up spending months here. So Frederick came to Ireland initially because some Quaker printers, um, the Webb family, had offered to reprint his narrative because they felt it was important as a way of getting this message across and so that he would have some income when he was travelling away from home. So he came to Dublin intending really just to meet with the Webbs to discuss republishing his narrative and to return back to England to lecture. His plan had to be to stay in Ireland for four days, but he arrived in Ireland and he was made to feel so welcome. And he was overwhelmed by, he called it the ardency of Irish abolitionists. And so he stayed for four months. He stayed till January 1846. And when he left, he described it as the happiest times of his life. And he also said that Ireland changed him. Uh, He used the word transformative. And even though Frederick had come to Ireland just to look over, oversee the publication of his narrative, he was asked by the Anti-Slavery Society in Ireland if he would lecture. And so on the 3rd of September, Frederick gave his first lecture in Dublin. And the place he lectured in, it's now the City Hall, was overflowing. So he was asked would he give another lecture, but this time they said we need to go to a bigger venue. And that began his career as a lecturer in Dublin. And he lectured about 50 times in total throughout Ireland. Having arrived in August 1845, Frederick arrived as Ireland stood on the precipice of the Great Famine. I asked Christine to contextualise Frederick's visit in terms of the famine. So Frederick arrived in August 1845, around the time, ironically, the blight arrived in Ireland. And this blight was new, but Ireland was used to famine. So as we know, pretty well every generation underwent a period of famine. So in some senses, the failure of the potato crop was not unusual. And in 1845, nobody knew the country was about to undergo seven years of famine. What really made it unusual was that in 1846, this blight came back and destroyed the potato crop again, even more viciously. And it came back in 1847, 1848, 1849, 1850 and 1851 in varying degrees. But from the perspective of 1845 and this young fugitive slave arriving in Ireland, neither he or anybody else realised that Ireland was on the brink of this massive famine. But what Frederick did observe and what shocked him was the utter poverty of many of the Irish people, especially children. It broke his heart to see the children so hungry and so poor. And he wrote about the poverty and he said that he hadn't experienced such poverty except within the plantations of slaves in America. So he was really shocked. It was one of the things that in some ways has helped him to refine his thinking because he hadn't expected that in a country that was white, it would be such levels of poverty. So again, being in Ireland really helped inform his political outlook and his philosophy in a way that was really 
influenced the way he thought about what it meant to be white, what it meant to be privileged and what it meant to be a slave. I was curious as to how Frederick Douglass was received by the wider population outside of anti-slavery circles. Ready to pop the question? The jewellers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Yeah, it seems he was received very well. So the Quakers were really progressive and at the forefront of many progressive movements. In Ireland, there were only about 3,000 of them, but they were particularly active in the abolition movement. But Frederick, as I said, he started to lecture. He first lectured 3rd of September, and then he lectured every few days after that. He travelled to Waterford, to Wexford, to Yale, to Cork, to Limerick, to Belfast. He lectured in each of those places. He didn't write down his lectures that we had have extensive newspaper coverage of his lectures. And one of the great things about 19th century newspapers is they record the response of the, of the audience. So Frederick will say something and then it will say cheers or loud cheers or whatever. So it very much seems, and the audience were always full, so it very much seems that Irish people took Frederick very much to his heart. And he had a correspondence with Garrison, so every few weeks, as he promised, he would write to Garrison. And within two weeks of being in Ireland, he said that his experience was so positive. He not only felt for the first time in his life free and safe, he felt he was the equal of white men. And that was an experience he never had in America and he was never really to have again. And so for him, again, Ireland became very liberating and very empowering because he felt equal. He said he could walk streets with a white woman and nobody would attack him either verbally or physically. You know, as a black abolitionist in America, he had been beaten up on many occasions. So again, the sense of just being welcomed, being treated as an equal, must have been so liberating. Um, and not only by ordinary people, the mayor of Dublin, the mayor of Cork, the mayor of Belfast, they all welcomed him. When he was in Dublin, he dined in the mansion house. When he was in Belfast, he was introduced by a local landlord who was also a member of the British Parliament. These things were unthinkable in the context of America. So again, it must have been, and he said it was joyous. And this enabled him, I think, to find his voice, his agency, in a way that really impacted on him for the rest of his life. Now, if you want to know more about Frederick Douglass in Ireland, Christine is organising a virtual tour online for Culture Night, looking at the places associated with Frederick Douglass in Dublin. It's on Friday, the 18th of September. You can find out more at the Culture Night website. That's culturenight.ie. But I'll have a full link to that specific event in the show notes. 
Now, back in the 1840s, while he received a positive response in Ireland, there was unquestionably racism and some hostility to the anti-slavery movement at the time. As Christine now explains, by the time of Frederick Douglass's arrival, the movement demanding a repeal of the Act of Union, which if passed would have given Ireland increased autonomy, was splitting into two groups. They were the more radical Young Irelanders and Daniel O'Connell's supporters known as Old Ireland. One of the leading members of the Young Ireland movement was John Mitchell, who was extremely racist. Indeed, he would later go on to be one of the most vocal supporters of the Confederacy in the US Civil War. In the 1840s, his influence had a big impact on the Young Ireland movement. When Frederick comes, 1845, 1846, O'Connell is very much um, trying to revive the repeal movement. But O'Connell is not in some ways the force he had been. And at that stage, the repeal movement is splitting into Young Ireland and Old Ireland. And the split is formalised in the summer of 1846. And of Young Ireland, John Mitchell is probably the most radical, the most energetic, and in some ways the most influential. And what's interesting is that Daniel O'Connell had been a committed abolitionist since the 1820s, and he rarely made a speech without mentioning the need for the ending of slavery. And Young Ireland felt that O'Connell should not mention slavery. They felt that they should just talk about repeal and focus on repeal. And we know that O'Connell's very vicious attacks on America and describing slavery as a blot on their democracy had really some of O'Connell's supporters in America had said, we're going to stop sending you money if you keep on attacking slavery. If slavery is legal and it makes it uncomfortable for us you know, as Irish in America if you are making all these attacks on the country that has given us you know, a new life. But so Young Ireland, even though they didn't speak out in favour of slavery in the way that John Mitchell subsequently did, they really did not like Daniel O'Connell both addressing the repeal issue and addressing the slavery issue, often within the same meeting. And what's ironic about Young Ireland is even though they didn't embrace abolition the way that O'Connell did in the 1840s, by the 1860s, when many of them, especially the leaders, are now in exile in America, it was something that split them. So we know John Mitchell's views were racist and offensive when he got to America, uh, but we know Thomas Francis Marr fought on the side of the Union and fought very bravely on the side of the Union. So you know, abolition, especially in America, was an issue that really split people. I asked Christine to expand on this tension, particularly between Irish people in Ireland and the Irish in America, who were frequently racist. And what really is shocking to people like Daniel O'Connell, Frederick Douglass, is the racism of the Irish in America. Because Frederick talks about the ardency, the warmth of the welcome in Ireland. And then when he returns to America after 1847, he again encounters racism from Irish Americans. And it really bothers him, it angers him, and it perplexes him. It's why are Irish people in Ireland such great abolitionists? Why, when they cross the Atlantic, do they forget that? And it's something that had bothered Daniel O'Connell. And in 1843, he wrote an 11-page letter to Irish Americans, haranguing them, saying, why are you so cruel? You did not learn this cruelty in Ireland. And you should join the abolition movement immediately. Because as Irish people, Daniel O'Connell uses language, as Irish people, we are slaves. And we should be able to empathize with other slaves and their oppression. So the 
role of the Irish in America is something that really disappointed abolitionists um, in Ireland and abolitionists in America. I was intrigued that Irish people could have such different views depending on where they lived. And I asked Christine why she thought this was the case. Christine identifies the famine, the Irish connection to the 19th century Democratic Party and even the Catholic Church as being the root cause of this. We know, especially before the farm, before the 1840s, there were instances of Irish immigrants and free black people living in the same area. We know there was high instances of intermarriage. But it seems that you know, post-famine, this uh, antipathy is in some ways whipped up. It comes to a height with draft rights in 1863. It doesn't disappear after then. Uh, and the reasons are complex. And again, they change over time. But it seems you know, people who are justifying their stance to O'Connell say, well, you know, we come to this country, we bring nothing. And we expect you know, the hospitality of America and here is slavery, which is legal in America. So what you want us to do is to come into a country and criticise it straight away. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to draw attention to ourselves. Um, the 1840s was a period of nativism in America. So the large number of immigrants who went were really despised for being Irish, for being Catholic, for being uneducated. Uh, the Know Nothing Party, as it was called. And the party that gave succour to these Irish immigrants was the Democratic Party. And at that stage, the Democratic Party was pro-slavery. So, um, And then even in the 1840s, leading members of the Catholic Church said to Irish people coming in, you keep your heads down, don't get involved in anything, do not support the abolitionists because they are extremists. And even the abolitionist stance on women's suffrage, as I said to you, in the 1840s was seen as an example of extremism. So there's a number of reasons. And then you know, this idea that, oh, if there is an end to enslavement, these people will take your jobs and you know, because you're both at the bottom of the social scale. So that was a way of trying to create a difference and a distance between two groups of people who essentially were impoverished and marginalised. So it is complex and it does change, but certainly the role of Irish Americans in not supporting abolition is something that makes abolitionists in Ireland very angry. Um, Mary Ann McCracken, um, sister of Henry Joy, she met Frederick Douglass in 1845-1846 and she made her mission to go down to the dockside with a leaflet urging people who were emigrating to America to join the abolition movement when they got there. So certainly it was something that bothered um, abolitionists in Ireland. So far, we have focused on men, Frederick Douglass and Equiano Alauda. However, as Christine explains, women played an important role, particularly as we move towards the crucial period in the story of abolitionism, the US Civil War. Since the 18th century, the abolition movement, the anti-slavery movement, had really attracted a lot of women. And in many ways, women were the engine that kept it moving because they were the fundraisers. They held fundraising bazaars. They organised petitions. They organised boycotts of sugar, etc., etc. So women were very important in the anti-slavery movement. But they weren't visible. You know, a woman's place was still in the home, etc. So they really, in some ways, they were relegated to a secondary role. And 
number of abolitionists, especially in America, and William Lloyd Garrison, Frederick Douglass, believed that women were the equal of men and that women should have the vote. And in 1840, there was a massive anti-slavery convention in London, and Frederick at that stage was not well known. But William Lloyd Garrison came over to it with a number of women delegates. Daniel O'Connell was one of the superstars of it, Thomas Clarkson, the venerable English abolitionist. And the very first day, the very first motion was whether women should be allowed or not to be equal delegates. And the meeting voted that they shouldn't. So women had to sit in the gallery. So even though women were so important in the abolition movement, within the movement itself, you, the men regarded them as second-class citizens who shouldn't be treated as the equals of men. Um, Daniel O'Connell voted against the women, and then he came to a regret it. He actually apologized to the women who he had excluded from the meeting. But in America, the more radical end of abolition, which Frederick belonged to, was tied up with the women's movement. And it's interesting that when Frederick returned from his trip around Britain and Ireland in 1848, he attended the Seneca Falls Convention, which made a call for women's suffrage. And he was one of the few men and the only man of African-American descent who signed the petition on behalf of women. Uh, so throughout his life, Frederick Douglass was a committed supporter of women's suffrage. The day he died in 1895, he'd attended a meeting for women's suffrage. So um, he was given a standing ovation. So women were very important in abolition, but they didn't really have a voice. However, in the year 1859, two years before the US Civil War, an African-American woman, Sarah Parker Riemann, arrived in Ireland to build support for abolitionism and anti-racism. Sarah had a different background to Equiano and Frederick Douglass, as Christine now explains. What's unusual about Sarah Parker Raymond? Um, she comes from a free black family who are quite affluent. But even though their family are free, she and her brother, Charles, who I've mentioned, experienced prejudice. So they spoke out for the need for slavery to end but they also said it's not enough simply for slavery to end we also have to end racism and prejudice and her brother Charles had visited Ireland in 1842 and Sarah she's 15 years younger than her brother she visits in 1859 and she wants to visit in her own right she's somebody who really knows what she wants um, she's spoken out in America on behalf of women's suffrage at one point she went to a theatre as a woman she wasn't allowed and they ejected her she went to the police to complain about her treatment she went to the press so she was a woman who even before she arrived across the Atlantic was pretty fearless and she arrived in Liverpool she gave a lecture there she was very warmly treated but she came to Ireland she made Ireland her first place to spend a few months and like so many before her she stayed on what's now Pierce Street with the Webb family and the Webb family wrote about her that she was the most intelligent of all the abolitionists they'd hosted apart from Frederick Douglass but they found her to be more charming than Frederick Douglass um, they found him to be a bit aloof and she lectured and her lectures again they appeared in the newspapers and they were brilliant and 
Sarah's unique contribution and her charm was as a woman, she spoke on behalf of enslaved women and she spoke very movingly about them. And as a woman, she appealed to other women to do something on behalf of enslaved women. So she brought a really new dimension to the abolition movement and she was a very effective ambassador for it. I concluded the interview by asking Christine about the free online event that's coming up on Culture Night. That's Friday, September the 18th. This is something you can watch no matter where you are in the world. In 2018, which was the 200th anniversary of the birth of Frederick Douglass, I came over for Culture Night and I did a walking tour of some of the main places associated with Frederick Douglass. And it was really successful. It was a lovely, lovely event. I had a number of friends and, and talented friends join me. And Don Mullen, my friend from Derry, who was the founder of the Frederick Douglass Island Project. He read one of Frederick's speeches. Declan O'Rourke, the great singer, he came and sang a contemporary song um, about ending slavery. Um, Caroline Callery of the Irish Heritage Trust, she came and she was the role of Mrs. Webb, Hannah Webb. Um, so it was just, oh, and then how can I forget? This is the most exciting part of the evening in many ways. Um, we had a young Irish actor, um, a black actor, Kweku Fortune, who you may have heard of. He's just made a great appearance in Normal People. And he, in full outfit, came and was the voice of Frederick Douglass. And he was fantastic. And he spoke under O'Connell's speech and made the very speech that Frederick Douglass had made when he met O'Connell on the 29th of September, 1845. So it was very, very moving. Uh, we wanted to recreate it this year, obviously. I'm trapped in America um, and it's not a good idea to travel in crowds around the small streets of Dublin. So I'm going to recreate a virtual tour. And this year I will be joined by an African-American actor who will do some readings. And it's going to be a live broadcast. So it will be on Culture Night in Ireland, um, 7 o'clock in Ireland, 2 o'clock in my time here. So I'm excited about it. It will be different. Um, I'd rather be in Dublin, uh, but what can you do? This sounds like an amazing event. I can't wait for it myself. You can sign up for free for that event on culturenight.ie. I'll have the exact link in the show notes below. Until next time, Sloan. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.